0: Our scripture reading this morning will be from selected verses out of Matthew chapter 11. If you care to read along, if you have one of the Bibles from the back, you'll find it on page 816. It'll be verses 1 and 2 from chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, verse 11, verse 18 and 19, and verses 28 and 29. Matthew 11. <coughs> When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples. Verse 11. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Verse 18 and 19, for John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds in verses 28 and 29. Come to me all who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Amen.
1: Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we begin. Father, we are gathered now before your word. We want to be humble and receptive of it. And we pray that you would move in our hearts and stir the right affections that we need for your word. And uh, that you would change us. And I pray that you would help me to speak your word this morning with faithfulness, with clarity, with authority with passion, with wisdom, with humility, and with liberty. And I ask that because of that and through that, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, all of us, probably, I would think it would be a fair statement to say all of us like to receive invitations Unless you're receiving an invitation to something that you don't want to go to. But typically, we like to receive an invitation. And when you get an invitation in the mail, uh, especially if it's a wedding invitation, we just celebrated one yesterday, uh, often at the bottom of the invitation, you'll see these four sort of cryptic letters, RSVP. What does it mean? Well, you may not know this, but it comes from the French phrase, répondez, s'il vous plaît, which means, respond soon if you please and recently I heard a story of a couple who moved to America from a non-french speaking and a non-english speaking part of the world and they received an invitation to a what to a wedding with the letters rsvp and this guy had no idea what it meant And so he racks his brain. He's thinking, what in the world does this mean? He's thinking, he's thinking, he's thinking. And suddenly it dawns on him. And he says to his wife, he goes, ah, I know what it means. And his wife says, what is it? And he says to her, it means, remember, send vetting presents. Well, he was wrong, but at least he sent the presents. But you see, the man read RSVP as a demand and not as it was intended, as an invitation to accept an offer. And this morning, I have the privilege uh, to bring to you in the name of Jesus, what I would say is the greatest invitation that was ever made in verse 28. And it comes directly from the mouth of Jesus. Amazing words. Now, we live in, a, in an uncertain time. Many of you are probably feeling in these days of your life uh, a more than usual level of uncertainty about things. Um, political unrest, the threat potentially of terrorism, the erosion of the moral fabric of American and Western society, pressures on the economy, what will happen to your life this year. Maybe it's a, it's a health concern that you have. Maybe it's a concern with a family member, but it's all beginning to weigh down on you and you can feel it. You can sense it. There's unrest. And it's for that reason that Matthew 11 then becomes a great breath of fresh air because it reminds us of who Jesus is. I I think this chapter is a very stabilizing chapter. What happens is you're reading through the gospel of Matthew. You come to chapter 11 and you're like, oh, I love this. I want to sit here for a little while. It's like laying on a... On a hammock, on the beach, on a nice, a nice warm day where you get the nice ocean breeze and you're just laying there and everything is so calm and so peaceful and, and you just, you just feel great. And Matthew 11 has that effect. You read it and you come out and you think, wow, what a stabilizing effect this chapter has on my heart. That was my experience this week. I trust and hope and pray that it's your experience this morning. And so in chapter 11, we move into a, it's a transitional chapter in the Gospel of Matthew where, where Matthew moves us into a section where we start seeing now for the first time how the crowds, how the people are going to react to this Jesus who is claiming to be the Messiah. What, what, what is the reaction of the people? What is the reaction of the crowds? So in verse 20, uh, what we see is that the cities do not repent and so Jesus denounces the cities and he he cries down these woes upon these cities. And then in chapter 12, the next chapter, the Pharisees step onto the scene. And we know how that's going to go. Uh, in verse 14, they conspire how they might kill Jesus. And then in verse 24 of chapter 12, the Pharisees respond to Jesus and they call him a devil. So in other words, if they can't take him out, uh, they just use the political sort of gold card and try to slander him. And that's what happens in chapter 12. But nevertheless, Jesus carries on his ministry. He travels throughout the cities. He continues to teach and preach. And when John hears what Jesus is doing, this is what's kind of jolting about chapter 11. John the Baptist hears about what Jesus is doing. He's in prison and he starts to become concerned. John is troubled in his heart. And to make things worse, John is sitting in prison, John the Baptist... And he was arrested, uh, we know this because of chapter 14, because John spoke the truth to Herod. And he told Herod that it was not lawful to have his brother's wife. So Herod throws him in prison. Here's John the Baptist in prison. And the beginning of chapter 11 starts with John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, in prison, locked away. And he's troubled in his heart, not because he's in prison. He's troubled because what Jesus is doing. And he begins to doubt. Whether or not Jesus is really the Messiah. He's in prison. Jesus is not doing what he thought he would do. And all of this may help to explain why he's confused. So what he does is. John the Baptist sends his followers to Jesus. To ask him. Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? John is. What he's saying is. Are you really the Messiah? And and if you are. How do we know? He's starting to have second thoughts. Now. Here's here's the thing is that why do, why would he ask that question? I think that ought to kind of jolt you a little bit. It ought to trouble you because don't forget that John and Jesus are cousins. Don't forget the fact that John baptized Jesus. He was there when the heavens opened up and the dove descended upon Jesus. And so why now is he questioning the Messiahship of Jesus? Why is he questioning of all people whether or not Jesus is the Messiah? You, you should read this and be like, that's weird. John, the, the, the one guy that knew Jesus. Now, some people would, would like to suggest here that John's actually not the one struggling with doubt. So I, I read a guy who his proposal was that John's not struggling with doubt. What's happening is that he's not asking this question for himself. He's asking it for his followers. In other words, there, there's no but 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 if you read the text carefully and, and you see the emotion behind it, You realize there's really not any evidence to support that. In fact, not only was John himself struggling with doubt, but much like Elijah of the Old Testament, John appears to be almost demoralized. Remember when Elijah sat down underneath the tree? He's running from Jezebel. He's almost completely demoralized. And here we see John in a very similar frame. John is thinking, where's the judgment? Where's the judgment that the Messiah would come and he would bring judgment upon the people? Why aren't the wicked overthrown? Secondly, why am I in prison? What is going on here? And, And you can understand this struggle, I think, can't you? I mean, have you ever doubted what the Bible said about God because of the world around you? Have you ever struggled? Have you ever Have you ever laid awake at night and wondered, is this stuff that we believe as Christians really true? Uh, Have you ever, just be honest with yourself for a moment. Have you ever, I mean, have you ever fallen into a, a state or a season of despair and real doubt? I mean, just honest doubt about questions regarding the Bible and its authenticity or Jesus or God or all that you have heard and been taught. And if you can, if you can identify with that struggle, I can, uh, th- then, then you are in a good place because I mean, there are so many people who have struggled with things like that. Um, the, there are, this is not, this is something that is just, we're prone to as human beings and with our weakness and our frailty. Doubt is natural to us. We all know what it is to experience such doubt. But here's the thing. I think we should be very careful to distinguish doubt from unbelief. Because those are not the same things. Those are different realities. They're not the same. Alistair McGrath says it this way. He's very helpful. He says, unbelief is a decision to live your life as if there is no God. It's a deliberate decision to reject Jesus Christ and all that he stands for. But doubt is something quite different. Doubt arises within the context of faith. It is a wishful longing to be sure of the things in which we do trust. That's helpful. Uh, John MacArthur, likewise, says this. He says, when the New Testament talks about doubt, it primarily focuses on believers. It's as if you have to believe something before you can doubt it. You have to be committed to it before you begin to question it. So doubt becomes, here's the key phrase, the unique problem of the believer so this is, you shouldn't be laying there in your bed at night wondering, man, I'm probably not even a Christian because I'm doubting some of these things. This is just part of, you're a fallen creature. Of course, you're going to have struggles with doubt. Even Charles Spurgeon, the great prince of preachers says this. He says, some of us who have preached the word for years and have been the means of working faith in others have nevertheless been the subjects of the most fearful and violent doubts as to the truth of Of the very gospel we have preached. So, if Spurgeon's saying that, then I think we're in good, pretty good company this morning. So, because we're fallen, we can expect to be plagued with questions of doubt from time to time. And even for mature Christians, faith is hard. Faith is hard. But God will meet us. This is the good news. Where we are, He will meet us where we're at. Because God desires to assure us of his faithfulness to us. So in the words of J.C. Ryle, uh, he's so pastoral. I love reading his expository thoughts on the gospel. He says it this way, he says, Doubting does not prove that a man has no faith, but only that his faith is small. And even when our faith is small, the Lord is ready to help us. So that's the encouragement of Matthew 11. According to Jesus... John the Baptist, the greatest prophet that ever lived. And yet here we see him struggling with doubt. He wavered over the identity of the Messiah. And he needed to see afresh who Jesus was. That Jesus really was who he said he was. And this is the heart of Matthew 11. And this is what I'm calling you to this morning by God's help. Is that Jesus invites us to rest in him. To come to him with all of our burdens. With all of our doubts. And to find rest for our souls. Now, in order to strengthen uh, our faith in him, Matthew gives us three portraits of Jesus. And each of them are intended, I think, to strengthen our faith in Christ by reminding us who Jesus is. So we see three things in this text. One, Jesus is the Messiah, uh, verses 1 through 19. Two, Jesus is the judge of all, and that's 20 through 24. And third, Jesus is our gracious king, and that's 25 uh, to thirty. So first, Jesus is the Messiah. Matthew launches right out with this uh, provocative statement. He says in verse two, when G- when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ. Now notice that language. Matthew calls him the Christ. This is the first time that that language is used uh, in the Gospel of Matthew. Up to this point, Jesus did not go by that title, the Christ. But now Matthew is calling him the Christ, the Christ. The Messiah. And that title is used in part to remind us that the of the one that John is doubting. In other words, John isn't just doubting a mere man. John is doubting the Christ. John is struggling with faith in the Messiah. And Matthew is heightening the case here. Initially, uh, John the Baptist had no problem accepting that Jesus was the Messiah. As I said, he baptized Jesus. And he said of Jesus remember uh, Jesus is the one of whom I am not I'm not worthy to tie his sandals. So here's the thing is that we come to a place where John is really really struggling here and he's beginning to wonder and and the question I was asking myself in preparation was what exactly is it that's causing John to doubt? What's the problem? I mean I, and I would suggest the same thing that caused John to doubt is the same thing that causes us to doubt. And I wrote this down, three causes uh, of doubt in the Christian life. Three causes. One, uh, doubt often arises as a result of a difficult situation. Initially, John was in the wilderness. He's proclaiming God's word with boldness. He's preparing the way for the Messiah. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. But now, as a result of his faithfulness of speaking the word faithfully to Herod, that it's not lawful to have his brother's wife, he's thrown in prison. So no doubt, John the Baptist is experiencing hunger, uh, possibly physical abuse, emotional unrest while he sits in prison alone, all by himself. And in that sense, as I said, John is like Elijah, uh, who uh, this tired prophet who's running from Jezebel, ready to give up. And that's because difficult situations often, often create doubt in our hearts. They do. They just do. You just wonder why is this happening to me. What's going on? Does God not love me? Does God not care? This is a terribly painful situation. Where is God in my hour of need? And it can be used of the devil to create doubt. Second, doubt often arises because of our limited perspective. So we don't see the full truth. We don't see all that God is doing. We simply do not ever understand everything that's happening to us or everything that's happening around us. Trust in God is the hardest Hear this It's the hardest when you're faithfully walking with Jesus, when you're worshiping him, when you're serving him, when you're seeking him, when you're praying, when you're reading your Bible, when you're pursuing God. And in that moment, tragedy strikes. Suffering strikes. It's so hard. We know that God is good, but we can't understand. We just can't understand why the trial won't end. And why is it becoming more and more painful? And that's because our perspective is limited. But God knows what He's doing. So, this is what creates doubt. One, it arises out of the difficult situation. Two, it comes from a limited perspective. Three, doubt often arises when we're left with, this is a big one, unmet expectations. I expected God to do something for me. I expected God to pull through. I was praying. I expected something to happen, and it didn't. Can you imagine, John? Think about John the Baptist here. Just put yourself in his shoes. Preaching. Here he is out in the wilderness preaching the words of Isaiah. Jesus has come to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. And now John's in prison. What happened to that Messiah? I thought he came to deliver people from prison and I'm in prison. John was preaching that the Messiah would come and bring judgment but guess what? The Romans are still in rule, and that Roman rule is firmly in place. Instead of overthrowing Rome, Jesus is out hobnobbing with sinners, eating and drinking, and going from party to party. No wonder John's struggling. So here's this guy who's supposed to be the Messiah. He's moving around from party to party, drinking and eating, and 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 I'm in prison, and and Rome is still in charge. We wonder why John's struggling with faith. Is Jesus the Messiah? And let me add another layer. Jesus isn't even fasting. Remember that when Jesus says, I'm not I'm, he's not fasting he's, this isn't the season for fasting. So here's Jesus he's not even fasting. He's he's engaging with sinners so much so that verse 19 says look at 19 the son of man came eating and drinking and they say look at him a glutton and a drunkard a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus I mean he's he's eating with them and drinking with them so much that he opens himself up to the charge of gluttony and drunkenness, even though he wasn't drunk, and even though he wasn't a glutton. He opens himself up to that charge because he's there so much. No wonder John doubted. Jesus is not meeting the expectations he had for them. Jesus is not meeting the expectations that Jewish people had for him. Make note of this. Unmet expectations are not a sign that God is not at work. Just because your expectation is not met does not mean God is sitting back doing nothing. He is busy. He is working. Just because you see it doesn't mean he is not working. Now, let me apply this. This is a very, very important principle for those who have for many years maybe longed and desired to be married. Um, it, there's a few people I'm sure that I, this, this speaks to. Because the reality is I can remember being I wanted to be married when I was about 21. Uh, the Lord asked me to wait till I was 29. 29. And for those years, I remember praying and asking God for a wife. And I can remember moments of real struggle, of questioning, where is God? I mean, how old is this going to go on? How old am I going to be? How long is this going to go on? When is God going to meet my prayer? When is God going to answer me? My hope was deferred. I kept praying and praying. And for some of you, it's gone on longer than that. And you're praying and you're praying and your hope is deferred. Proverbs thirteen twelve: hope deferred makes the heart sick. But a longing fulfilled is the tree of life. So let me encourage you with this. Uh, this is this is just a good reminder for you this morning is that the blessings you receive, like the blessings of a spouse, the blessings that people receive are not given to them because they deserve them. So, see, because here's the thing, you may have friends who are in a relationship with wonderful God-fearing people, they may have a spouse, they really love God, and you might be tempted in the dark moments of the night to wonder, what, what, what did they do to earn that favor from God so that God blessed them with a spouse, and what am I not doing that God is not blessing me? And I just want to encourage you, don't go down that road. Alright, because that is to undermine the gospel. If you're not careful, you're going to try to perform for God in hopes that God will bless you. You're going to try to look around and see, man, what is somebody else doing that I'm not doing? And why am I not being blessed? And I just got to work harder for God. And when you do such things, you undermine the gospel because God's blessings do not come to us because we deserve them. God's blessings always come to us in spite of the fact that none of us deserve them. So somebody's not getting a spouse because they, they're a really good Christian. They really deserved it, but you don't. See, that's not helpful thinking. Just remember Psalm eighty four eleven: 11. God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. If you are in Christ, you have his righteousness. You are, in that sense, blameless before him. You are walking in a way that you're trying to please the Lord. You are seeking him. You're pursuing him. So God does not withhold anything that is good from you. So no matter how poignant your desire for a spouse is, it is nowhere near as deep as your need for God's presence in your life. And that's true for all of us, even those of us who are married. Psalm 73, there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I so just want to encourage you because I know that we don't speak to those in the, in that Space of life very often. I hope that's encouraging to you this morning. Just continue to trust in God. I was thinking about the disciples on, on, on Good Friday. Jesus is crucified. What are they thinking on Saturday? All of our hopes have been dashed, completely dashed. But guess what? Sunday came. So in your Saturday of waiting, remember that Sunday, Sunday is a reality. All right. So I'm not promising you that you'll be married. What I'm saying is, is that God will take care of you and that your greatest hope. Here's the thing I want to say to you is that your greatest hope has already been met in Jesus. Your greatest hope to receive forgiveness of sins, to have a relationship with God has already been met. Your greatest problem has been dealt with. And God is your friend. So you can move forward this morning with confidence. Well, those are some of the reasons, some of the causes of doubt. We all experience it. But here's the thing. We must confront doubt with biblical truth. When John's disciples questioned Jesus, what did Jesus do? Uh, Jesus told them in verse 4, go and report to John what you hear and see. I like that. The deeds of Jesus and the words of Jesus. Go and report those things. And then he quotes scripture. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. Jesus confronts doubt with biblical revelation, and so should we. He's saying, listen to the message. Listen to the message in verse 6. Jesus says, blessed is the one who's not offended by me. That Greek word, scandalizzo. Scandalizzo. It means to, 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 to be shocked by something, to be shocked by someone, to hold someone as repugnant. And Jesus says, blessed is the one who does not consider me repugnant. Blessed is the one who does not, is not shocked by me, is not utterly offended by me. To be, to be, to, this word scandalizo in this context means to be so outraged by someone that you utterly reject them. And the reason this is so important for us is that we are living in a time and in a culture where Jesus is repugnant to people. Utterly offended. People are utterly outraged by Jesus. And how amazing is it that we have Matthew chapter 11, a whole chapter that speaks to people that are offended with Jesus. It's it's brilliant. It's brilliant and it's great. Smart people, even great people like John the Baptist, offended by Jesus. So Jesus answers John. And in short, he says this. Let me tell you the kind of people who are offended by me. And then let me tell you the kind of people who are open to me and therefore find me. And in short, what we have is two groups, two groups of people that are open to Jesus and find him. You know what they are? Verse six, verse six, the poor have good news preached to them. And then verse 11, the least of these. Verse 11, the least, the first, the poor, they have good news preached to them. Well, what is good news? Let's just think for a moment about the gospel. What is good news? When we talk about the gospel, we're not referring to an ethic of life. Fundamentally, we're not referring to a philosophy of man. Primarily, it's not a message telling you to do something. It's a message telling you that something has been done for you. All right. So this is important for many people who are coming from religious, maybe church, uh, we live in the Bible Belt church backgrounds, and they're used to hearing, they're thinking about Christianity in terms of religion. If that's you, hear me this morning that the gospel is not fundamentally about what you do for Jesus. It's fundamentally about what Jesus has done for you, for you. And so here, here we are, and, and we're, we're trying to understand this. It's a message telling you that something's been done for you. And Jesus tells us that the poor get that. The poor get that message. They understand that. And, and why is that? It's because in general, the poor understand that better because they're needy. And the gospel makes sense to needy people. It doesn't make sense to self-righteous people. People that think they have it all together, the gospel doesn't really add anything to them. Right? Because they're already sort of complete. They don't need anything. But when it lands on the poor, the poor receive it because they're broken and they're needy. Now, here's the thing. Don't be mistaken. Self-righteous people need the gospel desperately. Desperately, they need to hear the gospel, even though they don't think they need it. They're the ones that most need it in some senses because they don't see their sense of need. But it's the poor that meet Jesus. It's the people who know that they're no different than the poor, who meet Jesus. So you may be, you, economically you may be rich, but inside you feel your poverty and your need. It's those people that meet Jesus and it's the people who have hope for the poor who prove that they have met Jesus. I mean, this is, this is pretty provocative stuff. The gospel comes to the poor. Now, I have experienced this in, in many majority world countries, third world countries, whatever you want to call it. And I have experienced that you bring the gospel to those people, they receive it. But if you bring the gospel to Manhattan and you take it to New York, they turn it into a philosophy of man and, a, and an opportunity to sort of for self-advancement. The gospel is turned into a philosophy. But you bring it to a poor village and they receive it as fact, They receive it as need and they bow themselves. They yield themselves to it. It's just something about the educated class of society. Now, we're an educated church, and I'm very grateful that we're here this morning as people that are both educated and receiving the gospel. But I want you to understand that's unique because because we have a tendency in our heart to take the simple truths of God and turn them into a philosophy of man. So it's the it's the poor that receive. Secondly, it's the least. We read that in verse 11, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. When John the Baptist says, how can we know that you're the Messiah? What does Jesus do? He quotes Isaiah 35 and he goes to the very heart of what's troubling John. As I said, John is like Elijah. Elijah expected God to come in power. He expected God to come in great demonstration. Alright, so remember with me, think back to First Kings uh, chapter 19. Let's just read this. First Kings 19, the Lord said to Elijah, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord and wait for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but... The Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face. God came in a whisper. And so did Jesus. This is what troubled John the Baptist. He wanted the Messiah to come in a great demonstration of power. He wanted Jesus to usher in this great earthly and political kingdom. But Jesus did not come in strength like that or power like that or glory like that. He came in a silent whisper and the world considered him to be weak. And they rejected him outright. And John is struggling with whether or not he can accept this Messiah because he did not come in that kind of power, in that kind of glory. He came in a whisper, in weakness. And he came, hear this, not only in weakness, but he came for the weak, for the least. And one of the principles that we learn from this is that you don't understand Christianity until you realize that the one who stands in all his sin and all his shame and all of his guilt in total dependence upon Jesus is greater. That person is greater than the greatest person who stands in his own righteousness according to Jesus, the person who stands in total brokenness is greater than the greatest man who stands in his righteousness. And unless we understand that, we are not able to understand the gospel. Charles Wesley, in his hymn, put it this way. He summarizes that truth in a very helpful way. He says, hear him, you deaf, his praise, you dumb, right? So verse four, the the deaf and and the lame and all this, the Hear hear him, you deaf, his praise, you dumb, your loosened tongues employ, you blind, behold, your Savior come, and leap, you lame, for joy. This is a great irony, alright? Listen to this. This is a great irony, but it's true. What that means is that only those who know they are deaf actually hear. And only those who know they are blind actually see. See? Jesus is saying, if you see, if you say, I see, you're blind. But if you say, I'm blind, then you see. If you say, I hear, you're deaf. But if you say, I'm deaf, then you actually hear. Romans 1, The ones who are righteous by faith will live. See, the one who is righteous by himself will die. But Romans 117 says the one who is righteous by faith will live. It's the poor. It's the least who meet Jesus. Is that who you are this morning? The poor, the least. Do you know that you're deaf? Do you know that you're blind? Is that who you are? Or are you offended by Jesus? Well, Jesus is the Messiah. Second, we see that Jesus is the judge of all. Uh, Matthew shows shows us that Jesus is the authoritative judge, verse 20. Look at verse 20. Then he began to denounce the cities where his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Verse 21, woe to you. That phrase, woe to you, is another way of saying, warning, disaster is coming upon you. That's a curse from Jesus. That phrase is saying, warning, Disaster is approaching. Jesus is speaking to these Galilean cities, all of which saw him, remember this, perform all the mighty works that he did. And yet, even though they saw this, they failed to repent and respond to him. The message is clear. Jesus will condemn the unrepentant. If you see Jesus, if you're exposed to Jesus and you reject Jesus, Jesus is saying, I will condemn you. And that's what's so dangerous about hearing the truth. If you hear it and you do not obey it, you are responsible nevertheless for what you heard. And to, and to up the ante here, Jesus says that even Tyre and Sidon would have done better than that. Shocking words. These cities, Tyre and Sidon, that were known for their godless immorality and idolatry, Jesus says even they would have done better than that. Even they would have repented. Even they would have responded and, and what did God do to them Ezekiel 28? God destroyed Tyre and Sidon, Ezekiel 28. So this, this is a serious indictment. And that's how serious it is to hear the truth about Jesus and to reject it. To hear the gospel that Jesus has come to deliver you from your sins, to make you right with God, to bring you peace with God, and to reject that offering, God considers to be the height of wickedness. For God to crush his son and for you to say no thanks is the height of wickedness. In fact, verse 21, Jesus says, it'll be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for such people. So those are frightening, frightening words. And then there's self-righteous Capernaum. Look there at Capernaum. Jesus tells them that even though they think they'll be exalted to heaven, look at the language of verse 23. In fact, they're not going to be exalted to heaven. They're going to go down to hell. So not only does Jesus condemn, this is amazing, the unrepentant, he condemns the self-righteous. This is the city where Capernaum, where Jesus gave sight to the blind. He healed the demon-possessed men and the paralytic. This is the city where he brought the dead to life. And how did they respond to Jesus? Total indifference. Like, we don't even care. Like, that was cool. And Jesus is like, if that's your response to this, then you're condemned. If you're already complete in yourselves and self-righteous, then you're condemned. And Jesus says that's worse than Sodom. So here's the thing, is that self-righteousness is that both both irreligion and unrighteousness and self-righteousness are condemned by Jesus. Why is that? Because self-righteous moralism, let's start there. Self-righteous moralism, this idea that you're acceptable to God through your own attainments, is a categorical rejection of Jesus. It's simply another way of avoiding Jesus as savior and maintaining control over your own life. I don't need Jesus, I'm self-sufficient, thank you. So it's a rejection of Jesus. In that sense, religion and irreligion accomplish the same things. Both irreligious people and religious people reject Jesus in favor of self, of self. Irreligious people say this, don't tell me how to live. I'll determine what's right and what's wrong for me. Religious people say, I'm more spiritual than other people. So God is obligated to hear my prayers and take me to heaven. But both sets of people are rejecting Jesus. The the irreligious man rejects Jesus outrightly. The religious man rejects Jesus in favor of self-sufficiency. But in both cases, they reject Jesus. But the gospel, here's the great thing, is a third way between two mistaken opposites. The gospel, it it shoots the gap. Christians are people that have come to see that both religion and irreligion are misguided. And that both their sins and their best deeds are really ways of just avoiding Jesus. So you can be a really good person and avoid Jesus, or a really bad person and avoid Jesus. But in both cases, you're avoiding Jesus. But make no mistake, Jesus demands our allegiance. Christians are people that have come to see that Christianity is not fundamentally an invitation to get more religious. It's not an invitation to try harder. It's an invitation to trust another. Another. So the gospel is not that we go from being irreligious to suddenly being religious, but that we go from a self-salvation project to a fall on my face in front of Jesus project. That's the difference. So we're not trying to be religious. We're trying to trust in the only one who is perfect. Religion by itself will damn you to hell because you are trusting in yourself. And God says, I don't accept your righteousness. What he accepts is the righteousness of his son. So Christianity is not about trying harder. It's about trusting another. Jesus demands our allegiance. He speaks to us. He calls us. He tells us to come. And that's what repentance means. We, we turn from where we are and, and we come to where he is. So Jesus is not only the Messiah, he's the judge of all. That middle section is scathing. It's serious. He's the Messiah. He's the judge. And then finally, Jesus is the gracious king. This is my favorite section of the chapter. And I think for good reason. Um, what precious words from Jesus. Verses 27 through 30 are some of the most beautiful words in scripture. Here we have Jesus at his most tender, uh, his most melt in your mouth Sweetness. Jesus could not get any sweeter than these words. The sweetest he can be. Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Those are words that we want and words that we love, are they not? These words come from Jesus who sat down with tax collectors and sinners, poor beggars, the sexually marginalized little children, this Jesus is so approachable. He's so tender, even, this is an amazing thing, even to those who are violent and aggressive. He's receptive. He hears them. He listens to them. And yet, in the same passage, we see Jesus pronouncing woes and curses on those who reject him. So this same Jesus who says, come to me, I am gentle and lowly in heart, says, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. Isn't that amazing? The same Jesus. It reminds me again of what I said in my last sermon uh, from C.S. Lewis. You know, is Jesus safe? No, he's not safe, but he's good. It's that sort of tension. Now, how can, how can wrath of that intensity and merciful love of that sublimity issue from the same heart at the same time? How can both of these things emanate from Jesus in such a perfect and pure way? The, the Bible insists that God is, is God of both love and wrath. And not only do those things not conflict with one another, but they actually establish one another. One wrath or love without the other. One without the other is nonsense. One without the other is meaningless. The reason he's, he's a judge And the reason he is a lover, the reason he is just, and the reason he is a savior is because these two things arise out of the same source. His goodness. Both his love and his wrath, both his love and his justice come from the same source, his goodness. He's a judge because he's good. And he's a savior because he's good. And how can he be both judge and savior at the same time? Well, you have to understand what it is that God is saving us from. If I ask you this question, what is God saving you from? Your answer to that might be, well, hell or something like that. Or you might say, God is saving me from myself. But both of those are correct answers. But there's a deeper answer. What is God saving you from? The deepest answer is God is saving you from Himself. The love of God is saving you from the wrath of God. And, and you want to see this in a beautiful way? Look at Romans 5 9. What, what an unbelievable passage. Paul says, Much more than having now been justified by his blood. Notice all these prepositional phrases, by his blood. We shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God, prepositional phrase, through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved, prepositional phrase, by his life. And not only this, but we exalt in God, prepositional phrase, through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Do you, you see what's going on there. God is saving us from himself. The love of God rescues us from the wrath of God. Friends, do not try to defend the love of God by denying the wrath of God against sinners. If you do, you will undermine the love of God. Because the greatest demonstration of the love of God is in the way it rescues us from the wrath of God. What makes the love of God so great is how it rescues us from his anger and from his wrath. If you deny wrath in order to defend love, you lose love. Here's the good news of the gospel. Jesus came into the world to die in the place of sinners so that we could be saved from the wrath of God for a life that is everlasting and experiences ever-increasing pleasure in his presence. The Jesus at the end of this passage and the Jesus at the beginning of this passage go together. So the Jesus have come to me, all you who are weary and you'll find rest in me is the same Jesus as that Jesus says, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. It's the same Jesus. And you cannot have Jesus, the rest giver, unless you have Jesus, the judge, they go together and they're meaningless apart from one another. And you will never understand real rest for your soul until you understand the judgment that God has delivered you from. You're resting because he saved you from the judgment that was on you. Charles Spurgeon once said, when a jeweler shows his best diamonds, he sets them against a black velvet backdrop. That's how he displays them. And, and we need the black velvet backdrop of our sin to really contrast the strength of God. And when we do that, we see that the gospel, we see the gospel for what it is. The gospel reminds us that God's capacity to clean things up is infinitely greater than our capacity to mess things up. The gospel shows us that while we, our sin is great, God's grace is greater. And so we can pronounce together as a church right now that Jesus, our sin is strong, but you are stronger. Jesus, our shame is great, but you are greater. And so Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Take his yoke upon you. What does that mean? It means to give him all you have. Let, let me break that down further. To take his yoke upon you means, I think, at least two things. One, it means you give him the full weight of your sin. Number one, you just give him your sin. You you are weary, you're burdened because of your sin. Your life, you're weighed down. You struggle, you fight through life. You are burdened people. So Jesus says, cast your burden upon me. Take your sin, take your baggage, take all your luggage of sin, and cast it on me. Put it on his on on my shoulders. Jesus bears. The sin, the weight of our sin on his shoulders. He came to carry your sin for you. Second. So give him the full weight of your sin. Second, give him your inability. Say to Jesus, say the commands of God cannot be carried out by me in my own strength. I do not have that strength. So I come to you, Christ. I come to you right now, and I'm and I'm and I'm coming to you uh, for you to help me, to empower me, to strengthen me. The call to come to Christ is not the call to clean up your life. The call to come to Christ is not the call to become a better person. The call to come to Christ is the call to trust in a perfect person. Not to be a better person. To trust in a perfect person. And when you do that, when you give him all, when you give him all you have, when you give him the full weight of your sin, when you give him your total inability, and when you do that, here's the good news. Jesus will give you all he has. He'll give you all he has. Like what? What does he do? What does he give you? Well, for starters, he gives you full pardon for your sin. Takes your sin. Charles Wesley said, my God is reconciled. His pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for his child. I can no longer fear. With confidence, I now draw near. With confidence, I now draw near. And father, Abba, Father, cry. He pardons you. You're his child. Friend, if you're a Christian, your sin is gone. It's gone. It's been paid for. Full pardon. You're free. Now, you live with sin, right? You still struggle with sin. But I mean, from a legal standpoint, from an accountability standpoint, your sin is forgiven. It's expunged. It's off your record. It's been delivered. You're free from that. Just let this land on you for a moment. Okay? If you die right now, you're going to go and you're going to be with God and you're safe. You're safe because Jesus pardoned you for your sin. You're safe because Jesus forgave you. He wiped it away. So if the worst thing happens, if tragedy hits you this afternoon, if you die, if something happens, you're safe. Your soul is safe because Jesus already took care of that issue for you. It it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Think about the, the aspect of freedom here. Your sins have been pardoned. You are free. It's for freedom, Galatians says, that Christ has set us free. Therefore, live as people who are free. For you are called to freedom, brothers. These are all scriptures. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. These are the these are the scriptures that land on us with such power when we realize that I am free. I am free in Jesus. I'm not free to live in a wicked and licentious way. I am free, though, from all my wickedness, from all my sin. It's been paid for. Therefore, what motivates me in life is that I should live for the one who freed me. That I should live in a way that pleases him because he has freed me. So you can lay your head down tonight on your pillow in total confidence and peace. Jesus says to you, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. So let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Paul says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the, this is the invitation that of Christ to us this morning. Let me just pause for a moment. Okay. This is the invitation that Jesus is giving us this morning. When life is hard, when your faith is weak, when your burden is heavy, Jesus says these words to you, Come to me. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus will not crush you down. Jesus will bear you up. And this is what Jesus is inviting us to this morning. And some of you, and I just have to say this to you because I don't know the spiritual condition of all of you, but I'm I'm sure that there are some people in here this morning who do not know Jesus, who are not Christians, biblically defined. Some of you have never lost the burden of your guilt. And you need to come to Christ that you may lose that burden and gain his yoke. Right? His yoke is easy. All right, so come to him now. Come to him this morning. He stands before you this morning. He's unseen. He's unseen, but he is really present. And his arms are outstretched to welcome you. Come to him just as you are. Come to him with all your mess. Come to him with all your problems. Come to him with all your despair Come to Him as you are. And this is, this is good news. This is not pretense. This is not make believe. This is not fairy tale. It is true. If you come to Christ, you will and can prove it for yourself. He will, He will receive you and He will lift your burden. For the rest of us, these familiar words, the problem is they may become too familiar for us. And we need to recognize afresh that these are areas uh, of our life, and these words are things that maybe we have never really taken seriously, at least recently. And so my prayer for us this morning is that over this building, in this room, that many of you are, are bowing afresh to the yoke of Jesus. And that you're believing His words, that in Him you will find rest. That's where your rest is. You're weary. Come to Him again. This, this, this invitation is for you today. It's not like you receive that invitation once in your life and that's it. Jesus is consistently inviting you to come to him, to receive rest, to find your rest in him. J.C. Ryle says, rest like this is the privilege of all believers in Christ. Some know more of it and some less. Few enjoy the sense of it without a battle of unbelief and fear. But all who truly come to Christ know something of this rest. You know, I, I know something of this rest. I'm so thankful. I know something of this rest, and, and I trust you do too. But I need to know a lot more of it. And I cannot think of a better way for us to use our burdens in life, our pain, our struggles, our doubt. I can't think of a better way for us to use those things than as a fresh incentive to come to Jesus every day. Take your burden, take your concern, take your fear. Take your problem, take your situation afresh to Jesus every day. Come to Him daily. Come to Him with faith. So this week, get up in the morning and say, I am yoked to Jesus. And I am so thankful that He pulls this load with me. Because the greatest privilege of your life is to be yoked to the Son of God. And if you are, then you are free and you're at peace with god let's pray father we we are thankful for your word and thankful for the invitation of your word to to come to you afresh this morning and to receive you as our peace and that you have made peace uh, wit between us and you through your son, Jesus. And that we have that peace and that is available to us. And I pray that if there are any in this room this morning who have not received that peace, who do not know what it is to walk with peace with God, that you would sovereignly, he, that, they, that you speak this word, this gospel into their life. May they hear, may you give them eyes to see and ears to hear for the first time. And for the rest of us who uh, have walked with Jesus, maybe for many years, But we've, we've defaulted towards self-sufficiency or we have, we have run away. We have not walked and closely with Jesus. Pray that this morning we would hear that call to again come to you, Jesus, cast our burdens upon you and to be yoked with you and to consider that the greatest privilege of our life. We are so thankful for you and we pray that this morning, uh, we would be Just go in the good of that gospel and that that would motivate us throughout this week. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.